0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com style. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 20. He who seeks victory. History of Portugal podcast is in part supported by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support. And where you will be able to ask any questions you like and have them answered on the show. And thank you so much to Michael, for signing up already and helping to ensure the longevity of the show. And whether you're a member or not, you can still help me grow this podcast by recommending it to friends, family, and coworkers. And please, give us a rating and a review on your platform of choice. The more reviews we get, the more visible the show will become, and the more people will be able to find it. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at historyofportugalpod at gmail.com. Last episode, we did a brief overview of some of the aspects of Christian life in Al Andalus to hopefully gain some insights into what the Christians of that area had to go through and how they responded to the pressures around them. This episode, we will take a stroll through the reign of Al Hakam II and touch upon some of the major events and characters that shaped and defined not only the rule of Al Hakam, but also the very collapse of the Umayyad dynasty. And now, let's get started. When the Caliph Abd al-Rahman III died on October 15th, 961, his 46-year-old son, al-Hakam II, faced no opposition to his ascension to the throne. By this time, Al-Hakam had long been acknowledged as the heir to the crown and given the regnal title of Al-Mustansid which means he who seeks victory in God. Between the ages of 4 and 11, Al-Hakam was usually left in the care of a senior vizier whenever his father left in one of his many campaigns. At the age of 12, he actually accompanied his father on campaign for the first time This early introduction into the high command of the military of the Caliphate meant that al-Hakam learned his father's approaches to waging war. And this undoubtedly played an important part in setting the course for his own reign. We also see great continuity in terms of policy and personnel between his father's administration and his own. A great example of this continuity is the slave general Khalib bin Abdallah Haman. Khalib had become something like the previous caliph's fixer. Whenever he had a tough situation that needed handling, Khalib was the guy he sent to handle it. By this point, the priority was the frontier defenses of the upper march. So, the general established a strong base of operations in the strategically important frontier town, Medina Seli. This allowed Halib to control the main route to the Upper March and the Ebro Valley, as well as the main road north to the Upper Douro that led to the frontier fortresses of Castile. But he was just too competent and useful to be kept on the frontier full time. For instance, when in 973 Al-Hakam launched a major expedition to Morocco to fight against the Idrisids, Khalib was the one chosen to lead it. After his triumphant return in September of 974, he was sent to the northern frontier to relieve the desperate garrison at Gormaz, which he successfully did. He then went on to pursue Count García Fernández, son of our old friend Count Fernán González, all the way back into his own territory. Due to these and many other achievements, Halib was rewarded with great honors. Most notably among them was when he was appointed as chief general, which was the first time anyone had received that distinction. These honors only increased his popularity, as demonstrated when a substantial amount of people volunteered to join his relief force of Gormaz. But Halib wasn't the only man that al-Hakam came to rely on. The new caliph's other close associate was a man by the name of Jaffa bin Uthman al Mushafi. Jaffa came from a Berber family from the Valencia area and his father was appointed as al-Hakam's literature tutor when he was a boy Jaffa and the prince became good friends as children and their bond lasted a lifetime once al-Hakam became caliph he appointed Jaffa as his secretary and as prefect of the city of Cordoba very high honor Jaffa basically became indispensable he was literally at the Caliph's left hand at almost all the formal ceremonial occasions that comprised court life and he became an expert at managing these complex and highly ritualized events he apparently was also tight with Halib but unlike the old general Jaffa had extended family connections, notably a nephew that was the military commander of his home province of Valencia. Besides Hali and Jaffa, Al-Hakam also had strong support among his father's followers just in general. But there was a segment of the kingdom that was still on the periphery of the caliph's influence and control. And that segment was, of course, the lords of the upper march. Al-Hakam had a vision of integrating them into the fabric of the upper nobility that constituted the royal court. It appears that he attempted to do this by assigning them to high military posts throughout the peninsula, and importantly, on campaigns such as the one that took place in Morocco. And while the upper nobility was on campaign, the caliph would occasionally assign Umayyad agents to temporarily rule in their stead. So, it seems like the Caliph's strategy, which was pretty smart, was to create an environment in which the Frontier Lords were actively involved in the business of the whole kingdom, instead of being exclusively focused on the narrow interests of their particular areas of control. This broadening of interests and additional responsibilities would also lead to increased rewards and honors, Further drawing these nobles into the court life of the capital. As mentioned in the previous episode, there was a growing resentment among the nobility towards the Sakaliba slave soldiers, since they were receiving posts and honors that were traditionally reserved for the aristocracy. So these integration policies can be interpreted as a way of re-establishing a balance between the aristocracy and the Sakaliba. Since this way, everyone would get an opportunity to gain some honor and glory. Much like his father, a significant portion of al Hakam's time and wealth was focused on the political and military events of North Africa. So, let's get into that. In 969, the Fatimid general Jawahad, who had previously subdued most of Morocco, conquered Egypt. Consequently, the Fatimid court left Central Africa and followed their general to the east, basically abandoning their project of direct control of Morocco. But the Fatimid caliph did leave a deputy in Tunisia, Zidi bin Manad, who was the chief of the Berber-Sanhaja Tribal Confederation. Zidi spent a great deal of effort not only looking out for Fatimid interests, but also building up the Sanhaja Confederation as a rival political center in opposition to the Zanata Berber Confederation of Morocco, who had the support of the Caliphate of Cordoba. Zidi then began launching attacks on the Zanata, but after some back and forth battles, the Zanata actually managed to kill Zidi with the assistance of an Iberian adventurer known as Ibn al-Andalusi in 971. Soon after, Zidi's son Bulugin launched a punitive campaign against the Zanata, driving them west of the city of Tlemcen, which is in modern-day Algeria, before he was eventually recalled by the Fatimids. This Fatimid withdrawal finally gave the Umayyads the breathing space they were looking for in northwest Africa. Or at least, that's what they hoped. But no sooner had the Fatimids left, the Idrisids decided to make a comeback and re-establish themselves in Morocco. So in 972, Al-Hakam ordered a large army to assemble in the Umayyad outpost city of Ceuta in Morocco. This army's main objective was to kill or capture the Idrisid prince who had taken over all of northwestern Morocco including the city of Tangier. Reportedly, the fighting that ensued was hard and bitter. The Umayyads had some initial success, but eventually the general commanding the army was killed in battle. Well, that's not good. I guess it's time to send Mr. Fixit. So, in 973, the general Halib was sent to Morocco where he promptly set about kicking everyone's ass and taking their strongholds. In short order, a triumphant Halib returned to Cordoba with the Idrisids in chains. But, as great a victory as this was for al-Hakam, it didn't solve the North African problem. And maintaining a whole army there was extremely expensive. So, al-Hakam needed to find someone whom he could trust... To send to Morocco to take care of Umayyad interests there. He selected Ibn al Andalusi for the job, since al Andalusi already boasted a good reputation with the Zanata. One of the consequences of the interventions in North Africa was an increase in contacts between the Berber chiefs and Cordoba, since al Hakam was very interested in recruiting Berber horsemen into his army since they were considered to be some of the best cavalry available. To this end, the caliph wined and dined the Berber leaders in his palace. One of the Berber groups that were recruited were the Benu Bizal, whom one of our sources describes as, quote, superior to all others in courage and bravery, unquote. They were of the Khadijit sect of Islam, and they had rebelled against Zidi and were responsible for his death. This brought them widespread fame. But it also meant that they had to leave their homeland for fear of reprisals by Zidi's son, Bulugin. Consequently, despite the fact that they were Khadijites, the caliph invited them to make a new home in Al-Andalus. Now, this is an oversimplification, but essentially, the Khadijites were a puritanical sect of Islam that were viewed as extremists by the mainstream Muslim population. But even so, al-Hakam allowed them to practice their particular version of Islam. This enabled the Ben-Ubidzal to keep their tribal identity intact into the future, a fact that will come into play in future years. But all said and done, by the end of his reign, al-Hakam had been able to recruit about 700 Berber horsemen which was quite a substantial number for the time. Along with Ibn al-Andalusi, al-Hakam had another trusted man working in Morocco as an intermediary with the Berber chiefs, and this was Muhammad bin Abi Amid. In July 973, he was appointed as the Qadi, or Judge of Morocco, and was tasked with distributing large sums of money among the Berber chiefs. Alongside this generosity, Abiyamid began a PR campaign in favor of the caliph, emphasizing his generosity, his power, and his orthodoxy, all of which reinforced al-Hakam's claim to the title of caliph. But in September of 974, Abi Amid was struck with some kind of illness and so had to return to Cordoba. So, These were the major political and military events of al-Hakam's reign. But the caliph was interested in more than just military campaigns. Like his father, al-Hakam was a very cultured man. He was an avid book collector and literary patron. He continued to fund building projects and expanded the Great Mosque of Cordoba. Since his father had greatly centralized the kingdom's government... Al-Hakam didn't see the need to travel around and ensure that local leaders would be loyal to him. Cordoba was the political heart of Al-Andalus. So, local leaders were expected to come to the caliph to receive official posts and patronage. This was a rather unique style of rule in Western Europe at this time. Typically, kings and or their representatives had to travel around the kingdom to meet with powerful local nobility, to strengthen ties of loyalty, and to collect taxes. But since the bureaucratic government of Cordoba was highly literate and knowledgeable in mathematics, it was able to collect taxes on a regular and systematic basis. But there were downsides to the way Cordoba had organized itself. As it happened so often, the caliph became isolated since access to his person was very limited, given that he was the source of political power. And access to the caliph was controlled by a small group of palace officials. Under a strong leader like al-Hakam, this style of governance was no problem. But under a young and uncertain caliph, this system was perfect for those same officials to manipulate and control the young ruler as was to happen to Al-Hakam's successor. But while Al-Hakam was in power, Al-Andalus continued to be extremely wealthy and prosperous. This wealth was mostly based on agriculture due to the introduction of new staple crops into the Iberian Peninsula. These included rice, hard wheat, sugarcane, and citrus fruits. This increased the quantity and variety of available food. There was also innovation in irrigation techniques. It's thought that a lot of these techniques may have originated in Yemen, since a lot of the early settlers came from that region, but they also came from Damascus, as many of the later immigrants came from Syria. This increase in food production was a large factor in the population increase of the capital city. Estimates put the population of Cordoba in the 10th century at over 100,000 people, making it the second largest city in Europe after Constantinople. The capital also attracted various industries that further increased its wealth, such as textiles, ceramics, glass, metal and leatherwork. Al-Andalus also boasted international trade agreements, though the evidence seems to indicate that the vast majority of trade was conducted with the other Muslim states of North Africa and the Near East. So, through merchants, Al-Andalus was able to receive news from the wider Islamic world and to remain an integral part of the same. So, these factors taken in conjunction, the population, the industry, the international commercial ties and the available civic amenities definitely made Cordoba the most developed and sophisticated commercial city in Western Europe. But there is another side to this coin. A higher level of complexity also means a much higher degree of vulnerability to disruption. Much like modern economies, Cordoba's economy was dependent on peace and an organized government. If either of these were interrupted, this sophisticated economy would simply just not be possible. So the famous wealth and culture of Cordoba in this century can arguably be attributed to the strong and intelligent governance of Abd al-Rahman III and al-Hakam II. But the good times could not go on forever. All it takes is one or two bumps on the road to derail a wealthy kingdom into darker times. Next episode, the Umayyad Caliphate will barrel full speed down the road of history and begin to hit the bumps and potholes on the road that will ultimately lead to its very destruction. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code Summer at OseaMalibu.com. That's O S E A Malibu.com. Code Summer. Adwanted UK is the provider of single source media data for agencies, media owners, brands, and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering called the Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader from AdWanted UK.